Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. I'm Alex Steele in for Lisa Abramowitz today. Don't leave your powder dry. That was a takeaway from the market from New York Fed President John Williams speaking yesterday. And then things got really confusing. The New York Fed walks it back. President Trump tweets that the Fed's got to stop with crazy quantitative tightening. Here to help us make sense of it all is Marvin Lowe, global macro strategist uh, for State Street. What did you literally make of the last like 10 hours from Fed talk? You know what? I think. Um we can get a sense of how challenged the communication process is for the Fed. That's the main thing. Um, there's, they're cutting. Uh, they're cutting 25 at least. Um, I think there's a moderate um, reason to think that it might be a little bit more. But really, the fact that they put it out there and they didn't realize that it was going to have that big of an impact on the market and need to walk it back just shows that the communication pro- uh, process that they've had since the beginning of the year, late last year, is still an issue. So, Marvin, again, as... Uh Alex was mentioning President Trump is out with a, a number of tweets this morning about the Fed, about their next actions. Just give us a sense. How do you think the Fed deals with all this no- noise coming from the president as it relates to their policymaking? You know, I, I mean, um, Chairman Powell, you know, ultimately uh, laid it out when he went in front of Hunk- when he went in front of Congress. Um, you know, they can't ignore it, but ultimately they have a mandate. They report to Congress, and I think that they do go back and lean upon that. Having said that. The amount of pressure that Chairman Powell must be facing is is intense. So um, I wouldn't say that they can completely ignore it, but you know they do have um, the side of their mandate um, to help them guide through that process. I'm also really interested in the interplay between the Fed and the ECB, sort of like officially and then unofficially. I feel like it's who can get to the bottom first, who can be more dovish, how can they influence their currency the most? What kind of pressure? Is Mario Draghi going to feel on Thursday? Yeah, so you know he's he's certainly um, looking towards how he wants uh, his he's legacy to end. He's looking towards retirement. He is. What he's doing. It's a <laughs> he That's what he, he wants. He is, and, and and we're all jealous of him uh, for that. Um, I think the Fed, you know, certainly has uh, more room to move uh, in this process. That's uh, something that the market's been focused on, and the ECB will be happy to wait for the Fed to make its uh, first move, and then all the other central banks are going to you know have the all clear to kind of move in the same direction. So, Marvin, at State Street, we're, we're talking about Europe here, but at State Street, as you think globally, you know, we think about the economies in, in uh, Europe being, you know, uh, slowing dramatically, weakening, even Germany's showing signs of weakness. Absolutely. How are you guys thinking about allocating assets to Europe in general? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's part of the um, asset allocation process, no doubt. Um, you know, it's a global world. You need a certain uh, amount of assets within there. Um, I think it's a function of how you want to move around the benchmarks. And the European challenges are out there, whether it's from a growth perspective, whether it's from their banking system, whether it's from the fact that the ECB just doesn't have as many bullets. Ultimately, if we are going towards this um, more looser type of environment, and, you know, do you really want to put an excess amount of your um, allocation there. And it's, it's hard to see wanting to um, overweight it uh, more than your benchmarks. So when it comes to the bond market, I mean, do you feel like we've topped out that we're at the peak of where bond prices can be in Europe? Um, well, 
Um, we're, we're certainly getting there. Um, I, I think that the ECB has already signaled that it's willing to go further into negative yields, even um, if it does cause more problems for the banking system. But it can't go that much further. Um, you know, the Fed certainly has much more room if we need to go there. I wouldn't say that uh, yields here can't go lower, but certainly kind of the relative movement between U.S. yields and really the rest of the developed market uh, yields is, is a different type of profile. So, Marvin, bringing it back to this side of the pond, uh, we're having starting to have some d more discussions or he more heated discussions about the debt ceiling. How do you think that plays out over the next couple of weeks, I guess, is kind of the time frame? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's certainly it's certainly good that they're talking about it now. Um, I, however, am probably a bit skeptical that they can get anything done. So, um, you know, I would think that uh, we're going to talk about September again and we'll talk about all of the uh, measures that so might be So trying to get something done before Congress leaves for the summer vacation, you think the odds there are pretty low? You know what? Um, the fact that they're talking about it is is, is positive. I'm just skeptical <laughs> based on based on um, how our uh, government has kind of functioned. Um, if, if it does get done, it's great. There would be a lot of short-term issuance because the uh, checking account of the uh, U.S. government has been drawn down as we've been in this debt ceiling, but it winds up being more of a short-term kind of market type of issue. I don't think it's ultimately disruptive. So when is markets actually going to care? About the debt ceiling? Yeah. Um, or, or, or just the amount of debt that, like, we're going to have to issue to pay off a deficit. I mean, oh, yeah. The, the Two different stories there, certainly. <laughs> um, the mean, market, yes the, and no. The, the market will care um, if we get to September again and we have all these dire warnings that they're not going to be able to pay their debt and the rating agencies get involved. Um, I don't expect um, any, I, I, you know, they'll, they'll, come to, they'll come to an agreement. Um, in terms of longer term with yields where they are now, um, I think investors are willing to look past the fact that we're going to have these record amounts of debt. Um, I'm not a MMT uh, advocate, but at this point, there is demand for treasury yields, and, and we've certainly seen that um, as we kind of push towards these lower levels. Where is the MMT argument or discussion these days? Is it st I haven't heard about it recently. Like, do we have to define it? Like, are we at the oh. place where we don't have to define it anymore because it's like that uh, vernacular? It, 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 Modern it, monetary theory? theory yeah. Basically, it says what and... What does it say, and where are we with it? It, you know, effectively says that um, governments can issue as, as much as they want, and we don't really have to worry about it. And you can uh, run big deficits and finance whatever you want, and there's always going to be a buyer for it. Um, you know, certainly. The increase in debt uh, that we've seen over the last couple of years makes one believe that that might be true, but you, you can't issue debt forever. Um, you do crowd out. You do create an environment where zombie companies are allowed to go on longer. There yep. are costs to the economy. Um, when we get to the point um, where productivity growth and overall growth is is gets to a new normal and people worry about it, the amount of debt is going to be part of that discussion. Yeah, I'm just not buying it. I'm in, I'm in that camp that's just not buying it, but we'll see. Marvin Lowe, global macro strategist, State Street, uh, based in Boston, but joining us on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, talking all things Fed and all things economics. Of course, the Fed meets at the end of July. Markets certainly looking for at least a 25 basis point cut. This is Bloomberg. Well, consumers worldwide continue to debate energy sources, including fossil fuels, nuclear, and sustainable sources such as wind and sun. To get the latest insight on how nuclear power fits in, we turn to Seth Gray, president and CEO of Lightbridge Corporation based in Reston, Virginia. Seth, thanks, thanks so much for joining us. Just wonder if you could give us an update on kind of the status of nuclear power in the U.S. right now. 
Well, luckily, your power has been kind of flat, hasn't been growing, hasn't been falling much, has been producing about 20% of the nation's electricity for some time. And now we're coming to something of an inflection point. Are we going to keep renewing the licenses of the old plants? Will we build more of those? Or are we going to move forward to newer technologies for fuels that could really upgrade those older reactors and deploy newer, more advanced technologies? And we have 98 plants in this country out of 450 in the world. China and Russia are moving aggressively to take the lead around the world. And the U.S. is now taking some very serious steps in Congress and the administration and in the companies to make sure that the U.S. competes and does very well in those international markets, which feed through supply chains to manufacturing all across America. So we've definitely had uh, the Trump administration uh, in some ways want to backstop coal and nuclear because they want a reliable source of energy that sort of stays in storage versus, say, solar and wind. Um, is that a legitimate argument? Like, do we really need to backstop nuclear or should we just let market forces kind of work their way through the system? Well, it's a very legitimate argument to give value to it. What you can do at a coal plant for a period of months and you could do at a nuclear plant for a period of many years is have enough fuel on the site to run that plant 24-7. So nuclear reactors can run 24-7, even if trucks or trains can't deliver any fuel to the plant. Of course, the renewables can't run when the sun isn't shining, the wind isn't blowing, and uh, need to be backed up by natural gas, which um, relies on gas flowing through the pipelines that could be cut off. So for unquestionable electricity delivery 24-7, you really do need nuclear and or coal. Nuclear, for, for a much longer period, could provide it. Uh, just as it powers our submarines for years, they could stay underwater or our aircraft carriers because they have um, nuclear reactors. You know, Try that with wind power. Uh, so, so I think it's a legitimate argument to give value to reliability of the electric grid with nuclear power. So, Seth, you mentioned some newer technologies that need to come into the nuclear power play. Um, give us a sense of what some of those technologies are, maybe kind of where your company fits in. Right. So, Lightbridge is developing a new nuclear fuel that will work in the existing reactors and new ones. The project just recently received its first U.S. Department of Energy grant to support the project and help take it forward. Our fuel technology is going to make the existing reactors much more economical by increasing the power that comes out of the plants, running the plants even longer between refuelings, uh, dramatically improve the safety, running about 1,000 degrees Celsius, about 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than the fuel in current reactors, and, and also uh, dramatically enhance proliferation resistance so that nothing could ever be used in a weapons program. And also part of the future of nuclear is the smaller reactors. The lead there is a company called NuScale, and we're starting to work with NuScale to bring our fuel to their smaller reactors, which I think will really be the lead in the next generation of nuclear reactors deployed here and around the world. And a big part of that is obviously cost. Can you walk me through like how much it costs to, say, build a new plant, maintain your current plant, and then build the modular fleet, basically? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, basically, the the costs of building plants are very expensive when they're first of a kind, and then after you build about six or nine of them, you're at what some people call nth of a kind. You know what they're going to cost going forward. So one of the plants that uh, was designed in the U.S. Um, by the company that's now Westinghouse and is being deployed around the world, um, the Koreans are working with Westinghouse deploying in Abu Dhabi, makes 1,400 megawatts of electricity. That's a ton of power. Cost about $5 billion to build. That's a pretty solid number. You could, you could build those kind of reactors or other similar ones for about $5 billion on what you'd call a levelized cost of electricity out over the cost of the plant that is cheaper than um, th- than coal. That, that, that works very well over time. It's obviously a very big upfront cost, but then your fuel ca- costs for 60 years or even 80 years are, are very low. Seth, you mentioned earlier kind of the some of the new technologies that could ensure or heighten non-proliferation of some of this nuclear technology. And we've got some obviously some issues with Iran right now. Give us a sense of just kind of the global deployment uh, and the safety around deploying uh, nuclear technologies globally. Yeah. So first on Iran, they've suspended some of their obligations under the nuclear deal. They're enriching uranium a little bit higher than they're supposed to. They're making a little bit more of it than they're supposed to. They could easily step back and go back under those limits. They're trying to get European countries to help them work around U.S. sanctions, which I think are being very effective on Iran. Uh, So that's not really too great a worry on Iran yet. I think it's more of a negotiation dance of them with Europeans. Uh, Nuclear reactors deployed by major companies under safe licensing regimes like the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission are the safest way of generating power in the world. Nobody has ever died from radiation from anything in the reactor in the history of the U.S. power and nuclear power industry. Even at Fukushima, as great an industrial disaster as that was, Nobody died from anything nuclear. People died from an earthquake. People died from a tsunami, but actually not from anything in the reactor. So it's um, it's a very safe technology. And um, in terms of proliferation, the, the way it's handled under the International Atomic right. Energy Agency oversight is very well done. Got and it. with light bridges fuel, it will be even much more nonproliferative. Understood. Seth Gray, thank you so much for joining us. Seth is president and CEO of Lightbridge Corporation based in uh, Reston, uh, Virginia. Very interesting as we think about how different uh, technologies are deployed globally. Well, Boeing is back in the news. The company plans to report a $4.9 billion accounting charge related to its beleaguered 737 MAX jetliner. And the company also said that the plane would return to service in the fourth quarter, easing fears that the timetable could slip into next year. To dig a little deeper, we welcome our next guest, George Ferguson. George is a senior analyst covering aerospace defense and the airlines for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone from Bloomberg Intelligence headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, George, thanks so much for joining us. The stock's up about you know, 3.7% on the news here. So I guess shareholders like this? Yeah, I think, uh, I think you're right, Paul. I think it starts to put a, um, 
a, uh, a, a cuff or a back limit on, on when we think we see this airplane back in service. And it gives investors a number that they can, uh, they can look at for what the cost is going to be. I mean, I think that they're probably being conservative in the date the airplane reenters service. I, I think Boeing doesn't want that date to slip, in the, uh, at least the date that they've provided. So my guess is they're probably fairly confident that the airplane gets back in service. That's in line, I think, with expectations that were in the marketplace for late 3Q, early 4, 4Q uh, reentry to service. Uh, the, the the cost of the airplane being out of service was a, a little bit higher than we expected at Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, you know, I, I think that Boeing probably, again, put a conservative number together here, so it's probably bigger than even they expected, and they detail uh, that they it's not going to be all cash, so it's not going to be all $4.9 billion in dollars. There'll be other types of concessions they offer customers, and it'll be over an extended period of time. And so I think now investors have a little more clarity around that, and that's part of what you're seeing today. I feel so skeptical. I got to be honest with you. I feel like my, it's like, what? Sure, I want to win the lottery. It's kind of the same thing. But let's pretend. Let's pretend that this is correct. Boeing's estimates are correct. Things get fixed in the fourth quarter. What's not accounted for in the numbers, as in litigation or uh, compensation for airlines, et cetera? Yeah, so I, I mean, as I read it, it looks like the um, compensation for victims wasn't in that. And, um, you know, we think that's a pretty knowable number. It's, uh, you know, we think there's a, maybe a billion and a half worth of uh, potential cost of victims. Um, but you know, and and that kind of that kind of litigation can drag on for years. And it's it's a discussion about what the value of of people are, which is a bit of a macabre discussion. But um, uh, I don't think that there's I don't think there's a lot more that's uh, that's overhanging because of this this grounding unless the grounding gets extended. So, George, let's talk about the 737 MAX itself. Um, do you expect this the next time you go to London Air Show or the Paris Air Show? Do you think Boeing's going to have success in the years ahead selling this aircraft? Uh, I do. We've seen key customers that have come out supporting the airplane. Um, I think the IAG letter of intent at Paris was was huge. Um, and and the you know people like uh, Willie Walsh, the IAG CEO, and uh, and Ryanair CEO have come out and endorsed the airplane. That's a strong endorsement. Um, so I think that uh, this is this has definitely been a difficult period for Boeing. But once they get this airplane back in the air, provided they have no other problems, that I think look they've really poured over this airplane now. My guess is um, that that this will fade within uh, you know six months or so. What's going to be the holdup? Is it going to be getting past uh, regulators' compliance? Is it going to be the actual fix itself? Um, so I don't think – I think the, the, the bigger challenge here will be to sell it to global regulators. And I think that the IAG um, sale was part of that, was part of that uh, fix. And I think it will be – they'll look for airlines in the different regions to apply pressure to regulators – to at least review the airplane so that it can re-enter re service. Um, I think IAG probably got a pretty good price, and so they'll be incented to go to the European regulator and say, hey, take a look at the airplane, tell us what they've got to do to re-enter service. I really think that the FAA has poured over this airplane now because they don't want their credibility um, you know, further damaged. And so I, I think given the intensity the FAA has probably put into the, into the review, I think Boeing ought to be in, in, in good shape to get it, get it uh, flying in the U.S. and in Europe 
pretty quickly thereafter because I think the Europeans also they don't want to separate this regulatory regime that has sort of relied on each other's you know each different jurisdiction's regulator. I think everybody in the aviation industry doesn't want to break that regime where you can rely on regulators in the different regions. And so I think the Europeans, without a, a real right. strong reason not to take the airplane back, will, will, will resist or delay. George Ferguson, thank you so much. George is a senior aerospace defense and airlines analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from Princeton, New Jersey. Will you get on a 737 I was literally going to ask you that question. The answer for me is yes, without hesitation. Like, I th- I think so, but like I think I have to take a moment. I don't think I take my kid on it. Interesting. I I, I just feel like you know it, by the time this thing gets in the air, it's going to be the safest plane in the air given what it's had to deal with. Let's head over now to Nathan Hagen, our ninety-nine-one studios in Washington D.C. to get a check on world and national headlines. Nathan. Focus on Munis is brought to you by Build America Mutual. BAM Green Star Bonds finance projects that protect and restore the environment with more renewable energy and efficient transportation and buildings. Visit buildamerica.com slash greenstar. BAM, building America. When we talk municipal bonds, I love to talk about the Puerto Rican market. It continues to make news. Looks like Puerto Rico is seeking to restructure about $27 billion of obligations tied to the central government and its main utility. Uh, to get the latest, we welcome our good friend Joe Mysack. Joe is editor for Bloomberg, Bloomberg Brief uh, for Bloomberg News. He joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Joe, what is the latest on this ever or never-ending saga of the Puerto Rican debt situation? Riots in the streets. Oh, no. <laughs> this week, it was riots yes, in the streets. The, uh, you know, the restructuring will go on at some point. Uh, but uh, right now, the population is uh, restive. That's the only way to describe it. And what are they protesting, per They se? are protesting almost 900 pages of, of chats that the governor was having with his various aides and, um, you know, sometimes pretty salty stuff. And, uh, and, and in general, protesting, you know, the incompetence of government at the, on the island for years and corruption. Uh, so, you know, it eventually it just uh, blew up. So who knows whether the uh, governor will be able to survive it. Uh, however, the restructuring goes on. And of course, this being the muni market, prices of Puerto Rico bonds were unchanged. Well, I was going to say, so I subbed for Lisa, I don't know, what, two months ago <laughs> on a Friday. And Joe, you were here and we and literally we had this about- <laughs> exact same conversation. So like, what's what's a time frame that he's looking at me funny when I say that? Uh, certainly. Um, you know, the, the, um, we're going to have resolution of this, certainly this year. So I would, you know, what is that, another uh, uh, four or five months. Uh, I know the, uh, the oversight board is going to put their plan on the table uh, in about, a, you know, within the next several weeks. And there's also $50 billion or so that the government owns or owes for retirees and things oh. like that. So I don't, I mean, this is far from over as it relates to the, the, the overall finances of Puerto Rico. This you're, you're talking about just some of these bonds just, that have been in default or right, right. just the bonds, the, the $50 billion figure you cite is, uh, you know, what's owed to retirees and Puerto Rico didn't do a good job with its pension fund, which is now at zero. 
So I know that Paul loves Puerto Rico, and he knows <laughs> that I love PG&E. So uh, I want to talk about what's happening uh, with PG&E, their bonds, sort of where California is in trying to restructure their debt, have a liability fund. You know, California uh, passed legislation to uh, uh, set up a fund for the utilities to take advantage of in case there are more raging wildfires and, you know, they have, uh, you know, rather than having utilities go broke, uh, they would be able to tap this fund. Um, But the legislation also contains some... uh, impediments or it's it's not as perfect as it might be to allow municipalities to buy parts of the utilities and uh, especially PG&E San Francisco wanted to buy part of it and uh, they said hey you have to go back in and tweak this law for us California and uh, it looks like the lawmakers there are constructive on this they say they might go back in and do this Alex, have you ever been to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas? Oh, I have. Have you ridden, ridden the monorail from the convention center to your hotel? I don't remember. It was a long time ago when I was miserable. Yes. <laughs> that sums up CES for you. <laughs> exactly. Well, this famed monorail, which not that many people use, is the pro- that's the problem for the monorail. They mm-hmm. had a little problem with their municipal debt, didn't they, Joe? Oh, wow. What a story. This is obviously the story of the week. Great response. Um, Monorail sold $650 million in bonds in uh, 2000 and to, it was to acquire the system and expand it, which they did. And in uh, uh, 28, they, uh, 2008, they uh, tapped the reserve funds. In other words, went into default. And in uh, 2012, they, uh, uh, 2010, they went to bankruptcy. 2012, they emerged from bankruptcy after wiping out 98% of the bondholders' principal. So they wound up uh, owing $13 million. And this week, they paid off that $13 million, which means they're ready to come back to the municipal <laughs> market. Can you believe it? Alex, believe me, if you had been on the monorail, you would have been cheered up. Because it's nice on the monorail. It's like, you know, I don't know. I had literally just flown in from Paris and then to New York to Vegas. Like, I didn't know what time it was. But um, <laughs> what's the demand going to be like? And what does the Fed have to kind of say about it? Oh, man. Think about now, it that way. You know, what? <laughs> what is demand going to be? <laughs> I'm a lot of angry people who... Uh, say this is insane this is a perfect example of how frothy the municipal market is and uh in other words there'll be lots of demand (laughs) exactly well i don't know i mean having been at ces the cab lines are like forever the monorail is a good option why does no one use it i don't know well it's 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 a car culture out you know it's a car culture right well see now this is part of the uh the the uh the plan or the the, the uh, monorail would definitely like to extend to the airport, but the cab industry is dead set against it. Right. So, uh, the, you know, we'll see where the uh, where this expansion plan goes and if they're ab- ever able to tap the market again. But there is a small deal on the Bloomberg calendar. For the deal. For, for the deal. Okay, we'll see. Joe Mysek. <laughs> Bloomberg uh, editor in for the Bloomberg Brief for the municipal markets covering all things Muni's Forest joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I don't know. I'm I'm going to stick with the monorail. I mean, no, it makes sense. You're making good sense of it. Especially during CES cuz literally that the, the lines for the cabs at the hotel and the, are they're just forever. They need that in Davos. 
they need that. Well, I think they need like a sleigh. You <laughs> they know, need like something a, in Davos. They it's need not something a cab. <laughs> in Davos. So we'll see. But we'll see if uh, they can, in fact, if Las Vegas Monorail can come back to the market. We'll be on that story. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.